If you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them up to Romans chapter 12? And let me give you a bit of a um, warning. Feeling a little bit under the weather. So if I start coughing, the best thing you could do is just start coughing too. It makes me feel a little more comfortable. It's really odd when you're preaching and uh, 200 people are staring back at you while you're hacking your lungs out. So if you would be uh, gracious to me this morning, I would appreciate that. I'm going to speak a little bit quieter than I normally do. Don't mistake that for a a lessening of passion. Because what we're saying today, what the Word of God is going to teach us today is profoundly powerful. It is absolutely crucial that we learn it. And I also have a cough drop in my mouth, so that's going to be pretty fun. All right, if you want to go home now, you can just leave. I do want to say one other thing. I don't have swine flu. It's more of a canine version. My dog sneezed on me this week. But I think I'm fine. It's just a head cold. On Good Friday, March 27th, in 1964, friends, there was a severe earthquake in Alaska. This is a true story. And it destroyed numbers of buildings, including the Church of All Saints. So Easter Sunday, the Sunday after that, Okay, I'm the one going home. I really thought maybe I should just play the first service, but I'm going to try it. The Sunday after, on Easter, the parishioners of All Saints went to a different church, St. Mary's. Their church had only suffered a little bit of damage. Now, I want you to hear this. This is a true story. Two lists, two pieces of paper were posted And one of them had the heading, we need, and the other one had the heading, we have to share. And they were passed around, and to everyone's surprise, nobody signed the first one. But nearly every family present signed the second list. They put on there items that they were willing to share, clothing, food, fuel, skills, etc. And many of those who signed the share list had lost almost everything they had. Yet they were willing to share the few things they still had. It was a remarkable display of Romans chapter 12, verse 13. That's where we are today. We're going to look at two ways that we need to be committed to one another in the church. These are the final two ways of the ten that Paul has given to us. We're going to review those at the end. But let me, at the beginning, ask you a profoundly simple, but I think powerful question. How do you use your time and how do you use your checkbooks? Now, most people don't like questions like that. I understand that. But there are, those are two simple ways to quickly measure, everybody hear this, you ready? To quickly measure the extent of our commitment to serving Christ. What do you do with your time and what are you doing with your checkbook? Time and material resources are the barometer for our commitment to Christ. And we're going to see that this morning. As Paul says in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints 
and seek to show hospitality. Number one, he says churches have to create a family share plan. Let's look at this. How do we handle our monies? How do we handle our possessions? This topic, friends, for Jesus was simply huge. He spoke about it repeatedly. And he gave promises and he gave commandments and he gave warnings. He said, by hoarding our possessions, a person can perish. He said that. Jesus, the Son of God, said that. He said, by giving them away, we can lay up treasures in heaven. How we handle earthly treasures reveals how much we trust God and treasure Christ. So unsurprisingly, Paul includes this in what it means to be a fully committed servant of God. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints. But friends, listen to this. This is exciting. All right, let me qualify that. It may not be exciting. It's interesting. The word contributes doesn't mean to give. Now that's odd. Because I would imagine most of us said, as I did all my life, that word just means to give. You know what it means? It means to share. And you may ask, isn't that the same thing? Actually, it's not. And that's what makes this word so beautiful. You see, we might write out a check when we see a fellow believer in need and send it in the mail and give it to them. That's not what Paul has in mind. As good as that is, and that's awesome, we ought to be doing that. That's not what Paul has in mind in verse 13 when he says contributes. The word is one that you might have heard before in the Greek. It's called koinoneo. You might have heard of koinonia, which is a biblical word for fellowship. Koinoneo has the same root meaning as it's applied into giving or sharing. It means to enter into fellowship. Listen to this. Making oneself a sharer or a partner. Now, everybody listen to this because I'm going to make this make a little more sense, I think. It was used in a Greek marriage contract where the husband and the wife came together to agree to joint participation in the necessities of life. This is a partnership word. Giving doesn't really need to be partnership on the relational level. Contributing demands it. The idea was a partnership. Contribute is not just the outward act of giving. It's sharing in one's own heart the burden of need felt by the needy and the common sense of ownership of those things that can meet the needs. And Paul says, to whom should we share our money and possessions? Look what he says, verse 13. He says, to the saints who are in need. Friends, we should give outside the church. We should be giving and generous to non-believers. But Paul here expressly directs our welfare to the church, to the saints. Did you know that when it comes to the believer, the Bible ups the ante? Look what it says in Galatians 6, friends. Let this resonate in your hearts. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everybody. And especially, look at it, ratchets up. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. When you come to church, when you come to Cornerstone, or if you're visiting today and you go back to your home church and you go in there and you see your brothers and sisters 
that is where your passionate conviction to share your resources ought to lie. We're to identify ourselves with the needs of the saints and make them our own. Now, the eyes of our society, in the eyes of our society, we, we rightfully own certain things, don't we? Now, you might say, I own a home, but if you're still paying a mortgage, you really don't own the home. No, the bank owns it. <clears throat> I just plummeted most of you into depression. But you might rightfully, outright, legally own your car. You might own a blender. You might own a microwave. But friends, that's the way our society views things. Now please listen, you ready? This is so fundamental to what it means to contribute. Before the Lord, you better listen, you ready? None of us like this. We own nothing. There's not a single possession that any of us has that we could say before God, I own this. We're simply stewards and managers of what he has entrusted to us. And one of our most important responsibilities as God's stewards is in using our personal resources to share with our brothers and sisters in the church who are in need. Now, where do I see this in Scripture? You know, literally, if I had the time, it'd be fun to take sort of a kaleidoscopic tour through the Word of God to show that it is God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Yet He entrusts them to us in many, many various forms. But look at what Paul says in Timothy. As for the rich, can I dare say that's probably every single person in here, according to the standards of most of our world. I mean, I've been in Haiti on a mission trip. 98% unemployment. We're getting there in America, but we're not there yet. Where the average income for a year is under $300. I've been in Haiti and watched children scour over gigantic refuse heaps we call hills, looking for something to sell in a marketplace. I've been in Haiti on a Sunday where I visited a lumber yard, which was eight stacks of crooked planks up against some homeowner's fence. We're pretty rich. Let's just admit it, according to the standards of this world. As for the rich, Paul says in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Now listen, remember we're stewards who provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Friends, listen, let's just be sober this morning in our spirits. Let's just really get down to the truth. Has God blessed you with possessions in this world? He says through Paul, share, become a partner, participate with those who are in need. And one way we're doing that, I don't know if you visited our website recently. We have on our website a feature called the Bridge of Mercy. And the Bridge of Mercy has a slogan or a tagline to it. It means 
connecting those who have with those who need. And if you get on there, you're going to see several items that have pictures with them of people that have things they no longer want, have things they no longer need. They put them on that website, and they're waiting for people in our church who are in need to say, you know what, I could use that. And then there's another part of that bridge of mercy, the, the back end of it, where people can get on there and say, hey, we need a bed. We need this. We need this, and we don't have the money to get it. And we're waiting for people to get on there and see that and say, you know what, I've got the money, or I've got that item, and I don't need it any longer. I'll call them up. It's the bridge of mercy. It's what it means to contribute to the, to the saints who are in need. But Paul goes on, he says, not only in the first part, he says, not only create a family share plan, but he says, keep the lights on. And what do I mean by keeping the lights on? You know, I memorized this verse, Romans 12, 13 in the NIV. It says, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. The English Standard Version, that's what I preach from. It has a little bit different. It says, seek to show hospitality. Now listen, I'm getting to a point. You might have the New King James Version, which says, give into of hospitality. Or you, have, you might have another version, which says, practice hospitality. All of those are coming from one Greek word, which I think is highly interesting. And I'm going to give you a mental picture in order to never, ever forget what the word seek or practice means. Ready? Here it is. I want you to picture in your mind a policeman. Let's be politically correct. A police person. (laughs) That was a little stabby humor. A policeman spotting a dangerous fugitive and radioing in that he is in pursuit. I want you to picture that in your mind, picking up that radio, whether it's on his shoulder or in the car. I've spotted the fugitive. I'm in pursuit. Now you know what the word seek or practice means. It's the pursuit of someone that's in the mind of Paul when he tells us to seek To show, this is what the word means. It means to pursue, to follow. It means to press hard after someone as an army does a fleeing enemy. It's a word used in the ancient Greek for chasing down criminals. It was a word used in the ancient Greek for hunting game animals and the thrill of capturing them and bringing them home. It's the movement toward those who are in need initiating help rather than, listen, rather than sitting around waiting for someone to ask you to get involved. It's the person that says, I have eyes of mercy that are sensitized to those in need, strangers they may be, and a heart that seeks to follow to meet their needs rather than sit back and wait for that phone call. Hey, can you help this person? To give you an idea of the intensity of this word here, Paul uses the same word. Now listen, he uses the same word when he gives us his life verse. Here it is in Philippians. I press on. There's that word, seek, pursue, practice. I pursue relentlessly toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And friends, listen, if you've been coming here for a while, you're now familiar With the Greek present tense, that's what this word is in. It means start something now and habitually live it out every day of your life. 
Paul is saying, pursue every day of your life, constantly vigilant to those in need with hearts that are ready to spring into action. But what is it that we are to pursue in this manner? Well, he says hospitality. You know what hospitality is? It means the love of strangers. <clears throat> I didn't say love of strange people. A lot of you are very hospitable towards your senior pastor. It's the love of strangers. Paul is telling us, be pursuing friendliness to strangers. You see, hospitality was regarded by most nations of the ancient world as one of the chief virtues. Did you know that? It was necessary for the very welfare of the people. It was there to protect the traveler from wild animals and criminals. It was to provide for those who were hungry and had no table to eat from. If you remember, Pharaoh welcomed Abraham into his lands and he even gave him animals to start a flock. That's hospitality. Now listen, I'm going to give you a lot of examples. You ready? Laban ran to his nephew Jacob to welcome him into his home. That's hospitality. Abraham ran to the three visitors from the Lord while Sarah prepared food for a feast for them. That's hospitality. A wealthy woman from Shunem had her husband build... Can you imagine this? Had her husband build an extra room onto their home for Elisha to stay in, the prophet of God, when he was traveling through their land. That's hospitality. Job was so faithful in hospitality that he said, if I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or here it is, or have eaten my morsel alone, he says, if I've done that, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, let my arm be broken from its socket. You see, you didn't eat food alone in the ancient Israelite custom. Food was to be eaten with those whom you loved and you invited the stranger in. In fact, friends, listen, so ingrained is hospitality in the Near East that even today, Arab men, after their meal has been cooked, will go out the door of their tent or their home up on the rooftop or the nearest hill and shout for everybody around to come and eat if you are in need. Whether there's anybody within 100 miles or not, they always do it three times. It's hospitality. And if somebody did come, listen to this. They always got the very best portion of food available. That's hospitality. It was Martha who welcomed Jesus and his disciples into her home time after time. It was John the Apostle who said to his friend Gaius in 3 John 5, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. It's love and friendliness to strangers. You see, by the time of the early church, persecution had become so bad that the breach had opened up between the Jew and the Christian and ends were scarce, jobs were scarce, money was scarce, it was expensive, it was dangerous to travel. And so the church had to become hospitable for Christians to be able to find a place to live when they traveled. Friends, did you know that showing hospitality 
was a requirement for a woman before she would be put on a list of widows and taken care of by the church? Did you know that an elder had to be showing hospitality before he could be chosen as an elder of a church? See, the Scriptures lets us in on the heart of Christ towards hospitality. Do you remember that he sent his disciples to the Jewish people to preach about the kingdom of God and they were to, get, they were to go with no bags, no extra clothes? That would be like us telling you, we want you to go and spend three weeks with no money, no extra clothes, rely on the people that you're bringing the gospel to. And he says this in Matthew 10, in whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Live in their home. Eat their food. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And at the end of the chapter, Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives my father. hospitality but this is not hospitality you ready I love to have friends over barbecue that's not what hospitality is it's social life I did pretty well until here Here's what hospitality is. Somebody doesn't have a home. They don't know where they're going to get their meals. But I have a home. We've got extra food. I go pursue them. That's hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Our modern times are different than the ancient world. And it would be unsafe for a woman to invite a man into her home, be inappropriate. To invite a woman into his home. So friends, listen. How do you do hospitality today? How about being willing to tutor a young student twice a week in a subject he's struggling in? How about making a meal once a week for Safe Harbor? How about volunteering at Salvation Army and cooking and helping with Riverside on Mondays? This is all hospitality. Hospitality is not only opening up your, your home for meals and sleeping for travelers. It's the pursuit of people in need. Showing them the love of Christ. But Tim, what if people take advantage of us? 
Well, then live the Swahili proverb that says, treat your guests as a guest for two days, and the third day, give them a hoe. There's a lot of profound wisdom in that. <laughs> if they're going to live in your family, make them part of your family and put them to work. And they probably want that anyways. Pursue hospitality, which is an expression of love towards strangers. Now, I need you to do something for me. We're almost done. Would you take this out? Everybody grab your, your outline, and on the back of it, you'll see this list. Now, how many of you woke up this morning with a, a bit of a fluttery excitement going through you saying, I'm going to go to church and take a quiz? Thank you, Seth. You're my favorite. We're going to take a quiz, self-evaluation. You're the only one going to see the results. And these are the 10 obligations that Paul has given us that we just concluded this morning. This is how we all ought to be living in the church. And what I'm going to ask you to do is put a one if you seldom live this out, each obligation. A three if you regularly do, it's part of a habitual life for you. But here's what I want to ask you to do. Please listen. If you get to the end of this and score a 10, which is your possible lowest score, besides the fact that you seriously need help, <laughs> please understand it's just an opportunity for you to see the need you have for God's grace in your life. You could get to the end of this and score 30, and you can't be proud you can't say, look at how good I am. It's only God's grace evidencing itself in your life. This is an opportunity to examine yourself as Paul tells us we ought to. It's an opportunity to be sobered by what God has told us. By the way, the obligations aren't suggestions. They're commands. This is how God has told us to live. So let's go through them quickly. Number one, I have a strong abide, a binding affection for others in my church. And look at them as brothers and sisters in the family of God. How do you do? <clears throat> Number two, I value others and regularly make the effort to communicate that to them. Whether that's verbally or with cards. I have the mindset of a slave of God living fully to do his will. How do you do with that? Number four, I spring into action when I see needs in others that I can help meet without waiting to be asked. Without waiting to be asked. Number five, I have a fervent desire for God and his people that bubbles over into godly works. Number six, I consistently have a great, have a great deal of confidence in God's future goodness based on his past faithfulness, and it results in my joy. That's what it means to rejoice in hope. Number seven, I have learned to remain under trials and hardships without demanding a shortcut out, realizing that they are being used by God to refine my faith. what it means to be patient in tribulation. Number eight, I am constantly attentive toward God for his promptings and directing of my life. 
Number nine, I regularly share my material possessions in a way that relieves needs and creates relationship. And finally, what we just talked about, number 10, I pursue people by opening up my home, but not only that, but I pursue people by opening up my home to those who need food, shelter, and clothing. I pursue people who are in need. I go to them. It's hospitality. I don't know how you did, but I think it's good that we examine our hearts. And it gives us some clear areas that we need to either praise the Lord or give the Lord some requests and pray for help. Let me pray, and as I do, one of our elders, Scott Bennett's going to come up, and he's going to lead us in time of communion this morning. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, it is humbling. It is a mirror. It's a mirror that reveals to us your character, your attributes, your perfection, your holiness. It's also a mirror that reflects back to us, Lord, our sinfulness. It's also a mirror that reflects the work that you have done in our lives. Lord, thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for sanctifying us. Thank you for making us more into your image. We are different today than we were yesterday. Lord, I thank you for the word of God that does that work. Lord, I pray that we would be humble this morning, that we would be thankful for the things that we are doing well, thankful and giving praise to whom praise is due. That is you, not us. And Lord, the areas that we do not do well in, Lord, I pray that we would pray for help, realizing this is all of our responsibility in the church. Help us to love one another, to serve you, and in Jesus' name, amen.